where common sense, honest conversation, and thought-provoking discussions thrive in a completely independent forum. This is the Roundup Podcast. Here now is your host, Jeff Eager. Hi, this is Jeff Feger with the Oregon Roundup Podcast. What you're going to hear today is a, an interview I recorded with former District Attorney Josh Marquis. It was recorded on June 9th. What Josh and I talk about is the impaneling of the federal grand jury that is, at least as of now, investigating whether to bring charges, or pardon me, determining whether to bring charges related to Shamia Fagan's job or independent contractor gig with LaModa, the cannabis company. Subpoenas have gone out to Oregon agencies. That's how this hit the news a while back and wanted to talk to Josh about his experience as a DA, what we can expect from this grand jury and the federal prosecutions generally, and kind of what, what it means that it's, it's in place. So very informative interview from someone who knows prosecution as well as anyone in the state of Oregon. Hope you enjoy the podcast and we'll be back to some semblance of normal here, hopefully by next week. Thanks and have a great weekend. And now I'd like to welcome Josh Marquis to the Oregon Roundup podcast. Josh has been a guest once before talking about, I think, generally lawlessness in the state of Oregon. Josh was a district attorney here in Oregon for a very long time, prosecuted a lot of cases. He has some experience in federal prosecutions that he can elaborate on here in a second. And that's the reason that we have him here today is to help us make sense of what to take out of the fact that there's now a federal grand jury that has subpoenaed state agencies looking for documents related to Shamia Fagan and La Moda and its owners, Aaron Mitchell and Rosa Cazares. La Moda being, of course, the marijuana business that hired Shamia Fagan, former Oregon Secretary of State, as an independent contractor the disclosure of which led to Fagan resigning in disgrace last month. Uh, Josh, welcome back. Thank you. And I've got to put a few disclaimers in because I am still an active, fully licensed Oregon attorney. As you say, I was the elected district attorney for 25 years in Clatsop County from 1994 to 2018. I remain a special prosecutor in about three different Oregon counties. From 1991 to 1995, I was a special assistant United States attorney, which is a very fancy way of saying I was a volunteer prosecutor, although I did handle several jury trials and conduct cases both in the Eugene and Portland offices. Before that, and during a brief period of 1989 to 1990, I was actually a defense attorney in which I tried a couple of cases as a defense lawyer in federal court. So I want to make it really clear that for lawyers, this is sort of like speculating. I don't mean this in a, in a in a light sense about an upcoming, you know, game or something in the sense that I don't have any inside information. I've not spoken to any of the current employees of the U.S. Attorney's Office. And so it's not that there's some secret information that I have available to me, but obviously what's happening in Oregon is maybe a first of a kind. We really, at least in my lifetime, or my adult lifetime, which has been from the 80s through now in Oregon, there has not really been a federal investigation of official corruption of any real consequence. There have been some small ones, but this really is almost 
almost the first of its kind. And in that sense, I think it's really momentous. Now, it's also important to point out that the mere fact of an investigation does not necessarily mean indictments. One of the things the U.S. Attorney's Office is noted for, and I don't mean the, the woman who happens to be the U.S. Attorney at the moment, I'm talking about the entire organization of the Federal Prosecutor's Office, which Again, for people who don't understand that, and there are 94 U.S. attorneys around the country. In Oregon, there's just one for Oregon. That person is presidentially appointed, and there are roughly 40 assistant U.S. attorneys who work for them. And they operate under federal law, completely separate from state law. And they can and do bring cases before the federal grand jury which is 23 people who are drawn from all over Oregon who sit in Portland. And then they sometimes over months will present evidence and decide either that there is enough for an indictment or they may close the case without indicting anybody. And we really won't know that for a while. And Josh, that's that's a great background and encapsulation of what we're dealing with here procedurally, but really getting down to the most basic. So U.S. Attorney for the state of Oregon Natalie K. White. She currently holds that position. That's a, a position that's appointed by the president, confirmed by the U.S. Senate. What had to have happened in order for her to have impaneled this grand jury? Or is it a grand jury that already exists and now she has it looking at this Fagan Lamota matter? How does that work? There's always a federal grand jury sitting. I can't remember what their term it used to be every couple months, and then they would. It's not that difficult to figure out because ordinary Oregon citizens are summoned. I think one of the grand juries at least sits for 12 months. What they do is they try to rotate them because obviously asking citizens to sit, to come to Portland from all over Oregon is pretty onerous. They pay far, far better. I've been summoned as a federal grand jury. I mean, not a regular chair a couple of times. And then they reimburse you at the rate of about $250 a day. So it's wow. it, it's not like being in state court. But unlike, say, a state DA's office, the United States Attorney's Office is very much a prosecutorial, not investigatorial agency. What that means is it's very unusual for them to commence a grand jury unless there's already been a substantial investigation started by one of a number of federal agencies, almost certainly in this case, the FBI. So the FBI is the is essentially the police agency which submits the material to grand jury. The U.S. Attorney's Office doesn't have investigators that go out, unlike a DA's office, which has exactly that. And they don't generally go on fishing expeditions, by which I mean the U.S. attorney or the assistant U.S. attorney that's running the grand jury doesn't generally just say, you know, I think we should ask a bunch of questions about Lamota. They're generally much, much more directed than that. And frankly, I'm kind of surprised that they're moving this fast because essentially none of us have known publicly, at least except maybe some insiders, more than two months about what's going on. But we can assume that the questions that we've seen raised in the newspapers have been raised in the hallways of the FBI and of the U.S. Attorney's Office. And also, particularly with a federal grand jury, more so than the state grand jury, they're used as genuinely investigatory purposes. So, for example, you know, they're one of the famous quotes actually by a target of the grand jury, a disgraced former New York state judge named Saul Wackler, 
famously said in the 1980s that the DA could get a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich. <laughs> and what he was talking about was the fact that grand juries don't really operate entirely independently. And that, of course, is true. Grand juries are citizens. In Oregon, it's seven people. In the federal system, it's 23. And they generally look at what the prosecutors bring to them. But that being said, they are not I don't think you could get a federal grand jury to indict a ham sandwich. And even if you did, what would you do with a ham sandwich? You can't very well try it. My point being that they're probably starting to gather all the information about who is this Lomota entity that came in so big and so brash and spread so much money around. And let's emphasize this in cash. They gave over a quarter million dollars in just the 2022 election cycle entirely in 50 and $100 bills. I mean, when that was uncovered, that was really stunning. That's just what we know was done because that's what was reported. And of course, assuming everybody was being completely honest about it, being a, a longtime prosecutor and, and much more leery, I would assume we're really talking about twice as much money because we just absolutely no way of knowing how much money was really being handed around. Oregon has some of the laxest state laws about giving, but there are federal banking laws. Most people are familiar with the rule that talks about if you transfer more than $10,000, according to federal banking laws, banks are required to note that. One of the problems with the marijuana industry, even though it's been legalized, is that it does deal in huge amounts of cash. And the marijuana industry claims that's because they have been effectively cut out of the federally insured banking business. And that's true because people like to say, oh, marijuana has changed, it's become legalized. In the true international global sense, it's not. The United States is signatory to a bunch of international narcotics treaties that we need very badly to keep countries like China, India, and Mexico from importing huge quantities of fentanyl, methamphetamine into the United States. And one of the things that we can expect to see as those particularly vile drugs build up are the countries that provide these synthetic drugs and narcotics to start saying, well, why should we be so careful about these drugs? Because there are these other drugs that everybody else has to comply with. And your provinces, your states are freely dealing with this back and forth. And even though marijuana has been almost entirely legalized in Oregon, there has been a significant amount of federal criminal activity on illegal drug activities. So now we can, let's just assume for the moment that Lomota was entirely engaged only in dealing with legal drugs and selling them according to state law. We were assuming that they're not being investigated for drug activity, although I, that may not be an assumption one could necessarily, and we'll have to just find out what happens. But what we're really looking at is the possibility that there was bribery and that statewide officials were actually paid or money was dangled in front of them. The reporting of Willamette Week has been really remarkable. They've reported that, for example, one of the most important functions of the Secretary of State's office is the audit function in which uh, the Secretary of State can and does pick state agencies, some of them independent agencies, and they've looked at the parole board, the Department of Motor Vehicles, the Department of Revenue, in most cases, very, very critical. 
Well, they started an investigation of the Oregon Liquor and Cannabis Commission. And it was only weeks before her sudden resignation, and also long after the report had really been finished, that Fagan announced, oh, I'm not going to participate in it. It appears that that, quote, recusal was total BS. And that, in fact, that Cazares, I believe is the name of the, of the woman partner in, in, in La Moda, had essentially dictated pages and pages of what she wanted to see. She was obviously livid about what she considered an overly intrusive and regulatory agency, which is ironic because those of us on the other side of drug regulation have thought that the Oregon Liquor Control and Marijuana Commission has been unbelievably easy on them and that they've been able to, you know, for example, if you're running a liquor store, if you have the license to run an OLCC store, which most people are familiar with, you generally can't have been convicted of any significant crime. And I don't mean just rape and burglary. There have been many instances over the last 40, 50 years where people with more than a single drunk driving conviction have been barred. The only thing that will essentially get you barred from having a license to sell or grow marijuana are murder, manslaughter, or major felony drug convictions. Burglary is not a problem. Felony assaults, not an issue. You know, five drunk driving convictions, don't worry about it. So there's that to start off with. And it has been a bit of the Wild West with marijuana. And and people will remember in 2014, somewhere here, I have a, let's see. Yeah, I can't see this. I know we're not on video. One of the awards I I kept which was meant largely as a joke given to me by my colleagues in the Oregon DA's Association, is a trophy, which is about eight inches tall, and it has the symbol of the DA's Association and a hockey puck on it. And it says, presented to Josh Markey, 2014 ODAA Hockey Puck Award, service to Oregon being slapped around on the NOAN 91 campaign. NOAN 91 was the highly unsuccessful effort to stop the widespread legalization of marijuana in 2014. That's a really good segue into kind of back to this, specifically this grand jury, the helpful background on the state of marijuana legalization. I think the suspicion is widely held that what the grand jury will be looking into and what the FBI presumably has been looking into is more on the corruption side of things, less on the just marijuana business side of things or marijuana sales or possession side of things. What, uh, and also you, you mentioned when you mentioned the FBI, there was some reporting that FBI agents have been in contact with folks in the secretary of state's office asking about Fagan's activity in that office relative to LaModa and marijuana. So that would be consistent with what you said about FBI investigation preceding this subpoena that's been issued. And then the subpoena itself is to the Oregon Liquor and Cannabis Commission seeking documents related to LaModa and its owners and Fagan and anything else regarding Fagan talking about the marijuana slash cannabis industry, marijuana slash cannabis regulation and marijuana and or cannabis. What can we make of what the grand jury is going to be looking at or what the U.S. attorney's office is most interested in 
based on what we know about the subpoena right now? Keep in mind, it's looking into possible violations of federal law, which would include what is often called money laundering. Even if it's legal under Oregon law to say, give somebody $12,000 in a paper bag with money in it, you have to report it. If you don't, then as many people know, the way a lot of organized crime people get caught is not so much ordering hits on people or actually manufacturing the drugs. It's it's the money. That's why you know there's this old thing about following the money. We can tell from this that clearly it's the interrelationship of Fagan, Mitchell, and Cazares, and the fact that you know where did these people intersect? Is there a RICO case, a Racketeering Influenced Corrupt Organizations Act, which has been the way since Bobby Kennedy that federal prosecutors have gotten both into complex interrelationships between sometimes legitimate and illegitimate businesses and also racketeering, which means oftentimes one of the things that frustrates people is you don't need that many bad actors. The federal government is known for sometimes even setting up with FBI agents, I don't think this happened here, the appearance of a you know shady, maybe organized crime-looking group, and then reaching out or seeing if, say, a public official is willing to sell their office. That's considered racketeering. But in this case, it's a much more target-rich environment. You have Cazales and her partner who have these dozens of, of companies, some of them named, you know, things like stash house or, you know, that have a completely different meaning in law enforcement. And I'm sure it's their idea of being cute. And then a, a person who held the second most important office in Oregon. And although, you know, one of the funny stories and not really a funny way at all about Shamia Fagan is that she was very interested in becoming Oregon's lieutenant governor, a post that doesn't really exist. But what I mean by that is she made inquiries of the state police about getting a security detail. And she joined a national organization of lieutenant governors, roughly half the state's usually bigger than Oregon, have lieutenant governors, the jobs of which are usually sort of akin to being vice president and was famously one of the first vice presidents that it was worth a warm bucket of spit, meaning it didn't mean much. Essentially, you're a spare and you're there to take over in case of the governor. Oregon has had a couple interesting things in the 1950s, a plane carrying the governor, the secretary of state and the speaker of the house all crashed in Oregon and killing the first three people in line to run the state. And ironically, a man from Clatsop County, who I think was the president of the Senate at the time, became governor. But we don't have a a lieutenant governor. But but Fagan went to the trouble of going to national organizations of lieutenant governors. She reached out and tried to get the state police to give her protection. And my understanding is the state police told her there is no such thing. And if she wants security protection, she can hire it. We've had a history in Oregon of, of not making a big deal about elected officials. And I doubt that 98% of Oregonians would be able to identify Shamia Fagan on site and probably need about the same percentage of them, if there hadn't been this marijuana scale, would even been able to tell you what she did. That being said, she held a very, very important position. And we have seen at least, you know, two people become governors from secretaries of state. 
just in my lifetime here in Oregon. So she, this isn't just a minor position she held. She was literally a heartbeat from running the state as governor. And speaking of the governor, as you mentioned, LaModa and its owners and affiliated companies gave a lot of money to a lot of elected f- officials, all of them, I believe, Democrats. In all Oregon. of them Democrats. One recipient of uh, some of that largesse was Governor Tina Kotak. I believe she received something like $85,000 in contributions. I thought it was seventy five, but it was a lot of okay. money. Something in that range. And then she returned that money or donate rather. No, no, she re-gifted it to to the the food bank, to the Oregon Food Bank, which is an organization that she came from. Yep. It's not quite the same as giving the money back or saying I'm going to donate. I mean, almost all of the of the beneficiaries, most of which were much smaller. They were more on the lines of five to ten thousand. One of the scandals that is still outstanding is that Fagan had herself. I think she received much, much larger, something on the order of a couple hundred thousand dollars over from LaModa, and that she had something like eleven or $12,000, I think, left, which she said she was going to donate or return about the time she announced her resignation. And I did notice a news piece either today or yesterday that that had not happened. Yeah, she hasn't donated it yet. I My assumption is she's saving that to defray a small portion of what are going to be giant legal fees that she's she's well, going to as, be paying as a lawyer my guess would be that that would be a small down payment on the legal fees yeah a rounding error unfortunately for right. her you know one of the things that i've written about a number of times is this kind of odd occurrence and it relates to the oregon liquor and cannabis commission which is kind of in the middle of all this When she fired its director, Steve Marks, at the beginning of February, a lot of us thought when that first happened that it was related to the quote-unquote Bourbon Gate scandal where OLCC managers were setting aside rare bottles of bourbon for their own and friends' use. But Kotek, in her letter to the OLCC commissioners, basically saying this is a problem, she sent a letter to the commissioners saying, well, I did fire Steve Marks around this time, but it wasn't I didn't know about Bourbon Gate at that point. I didn't know about the bottle scandal at that point. There's been a lot of speculation, including for me, that okay, then so why did she fire him? And one of the things we've learned about this Fagan and Lamoda stuff is that Lamoda hated Steve Marks because he yep. was he, in their view, was overly aggressive in regulating cannabis, which was part of what OLCC does and did. There's a potential connection there. I don't know that there is a connection. Based on your experience with grand juries generally, grand juries, federal grand juries specifically, would you expect that the U.S. Attorney's Office, now that they're going down the Fagan and LaModa route, might expand this to look at Kotek and other Democrats' relationship with LaModa? Absolutely. And, and people should keep in mind that this is literally, I, I liken the, the feds and the grand jury to an iceberg in the sense of sort of the weight and importance of what they do. But there are agents working on this, and not everything is done through grand jury. A lot of it is done through confidential interviews. And for example, Although eventually you might want, you use grand jury for two distinctly different purposes, particularly in the federal system. One is when you have your case and in state 
grand jury. We do what I'm about to tell you far more often, where we have a very good idea of what happened. Let's say a shooting and a, and a is connected to a robbery of a building and the police have the person in custody. So we've interviewed the suspects. We have video of what they did. So we basically line out for grand jury, what the narrative is, you know, what, who can testify to what they saw happen. If we flipped one of the bad guys, we do that. And essentially we present to the grand jury, what we know that points to, let's say armed robbery, conspiracy to commit armed robbery, et cetera. The feds do the same things, but they can operate very differently. They also have, in a way, state investigators do not, very skilled questioners, the FBI, who are out there doing interviews, who may have already done interviews with a whole bunch of people. Although we don't want people lying to state police or deputy sheriffs, it's not a crime, (laughs) people don't know this, to lie to a cop generally. It is a specific federal felony to falsely give information to an FBI agent. And when FBI agents are doing interviews, they usually remind the people doing the interviews that, by the way, you know, if you were to lie on a substantive part of this, that you could be prosecuted for a federal felony. So we can expect that the FBI has already done and is currently doing a lot of other inquiries. And we won't see though, well, we'll never know, frankly, until unless the grand jury indictment is handed down, because what they're doing is they're through these grand jury subpoenas, they're going out to public entities and saying, we want to see this and this and this. You can be absolutely assured that if they're doing that, they are very quietly and discreetly interviewing probably all the people at OLCC and I realized that if I were the defense attorney, of course, for, say, Shemaya Fagan, I'd, I would say, oh, well, you know, clearly Steve Marks, who is the, you know, now deposed, he just has a, a bad taste in his mouth about being investigated for the happy, whatever that's called, scandal. Yep. But clearly something else is going on. And it's, of course, very revealing that the governor says, I didn't know nothing about that. That kind of surprises me because... The OLCC has not exactly covered itself in glory in past years. The idea that you would fire a whole group of managers because they set aside some rare whiskeys for themselves and a couple of friends. I mean, I'm not terribly surprised by it. And I think it's unethical conduct. It just doesn't seem to reach the level of the kind of scandal that the Oregonian made it into. And one has to wonder did in fact, and now that we know about the relationships in particular, and frankly, the Oregon and Liquor Cannabis Commission, as it's now called, had enormous influence over the marijuana industry. And we now know how bitterly the owners of Lamoda hated and resented them. Now, ironically, as an independent law enforcement person, I never thought the OLCC was particularly aggressive with the cannabis industry. But of course, I'm looking at it from a very different vantage point. They're looking at it from, you know, hey, look, we just gave a lot of money to, you know, to a bunch of elected officials who are on our side. What the hell is going on? And and why are we being tormented this way? And apparently, from what we can tell publicly, they expected to get their money's worth. And it certainly does appear at some level that they did. It sure does. And that's that's what, what the FBI and the grand jury are looking into, apparently. We don't have a whole lot of time left here, Josh, but 
how are we going to find out about what's happening with this investigation? Federal investigations, federal grand juries are notoriously tight lipped. Should we assume that no news means a lot's going on or not much is going on or that we just can't read anything into it? It could, it could mean everything from a great deal is going on to they've dropped the investigation. To be honest, I'm assuming from the people I've known in the U.S. Attorney's Office, and I've known most, if not all, of the U.S. attorneys for the last quarter century, virtually all of them, with the exception of Ms. Marshall, have been really smart, dedicated career federal prosecutors. And most of them, again, with the exception of Ms. Marshall, have not been out in the state political they have not been interested in a political career. They've been federal prosecutors. They feel no obligation, nor should they, to cater to either the media or, or the politicians of Oregon who might like this wrapped up. And the ones who don't like some of the characters might want to see them quickly indicted and disgraced. And maybe some of the others who think it's unfair, you know, having the case, you know, go away. So they're going to take their time and we're not going to find out. I was kind of stunned to see this become public, but then I had to remember that if I were running the investigation, I'd want to get all of this public documentation ASAP because what they're, they're going to be doing lots and lots of interviews. But I don't think we should really be surprised if we don't hear substantively more about this for months. And in fact, it shouldn't, wouldn't even be surprising if there's not virtually nothing coming about of this until later this year or even early next year. Well, we will have to practice our patience then potentially, Josh. Josh Marquis, I want to thank you for your expertise and your time. Thanks for coming back on the Oregon Roundup. If you're willing, we'll certainly have you back when we have more uh, legal slash prosecutorial stuff to talk about. Sure. Be happy to, Josh. Thanks, Josh. Sure. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Roundup Podcast. To share your thoughts with Jeff, you can email him at jeff at oregonroundup.com. You can also subscribe to his newsletter at oregonroundup.substack.com.